Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> so, 3.6 says, Just as Abraham believed, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, so know that those who are of faith, those are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaiming the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the, the believer. So, um, and we'll stop there. So anyways, faith is counted to us, I mean righteousness is counted to us by faith uh, through Christ and Abraham is the father of faith. So, Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your great mercy and goodness that you have given to us and thank you for those who are here to listen to your message, and I pray that you would uh, simply use me as your instrument, God, that you would guard our hearts and our minds and only fill us with the things that are of you, of your truth, and that anything that we might hear that would be an error that man would say to us, that you would help us to dispel those things quickly and only uh, fasten ourselves to your truth. God, we thank you that we can find nourishment for our souls in your word and through prayer, we thank you for these wonderful gifts to us, God, and we praise you and we glory in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. Those of you who've been with us for a few Sundays, I can't remember exactly how many Sundays we've been in the book of Philippians so far, but we still find ourselves in chapter 1 and are not quite done with that. But we teach in an expository fashion, meaning that we begin in one book of the Bible. We start first chapter, first verse, and go all the way through it together, teaching, expounding on it until we arrive at the end. And that's simply just our method of teaching. We want to hold God's Word high. We view it as authoritative, we review it as all-sufficient, and also understanding that man can get things wrong, and so when man is here interpreting and expounding upon God's truth, that I could expose you to error, and so there's a great responsibility that comes with that. So we want to remind you to be Bereans with any message that is brought here whether it's a children's message or a message for the general congregation, is that you go to God's word of truth as the source of truth and not man's words. In Acts chapter 17 is where we find uh, Paul commending the, the Bereans for being noble-minded because they did not just trust what he and Silas told them in the synagogues, but rather they came back to God's word and anchored everything that they said in God's truth. And so we want to remind you to be just like those noble-minded Bereans. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26 is where we find ourselves this morning. So hopefully you've already made your way there in your Bibles or in your Bible phone apps. And I'll begin with verse 21, and this is where we left off last week. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So we have read the word of the Lord, but now let's go to the Lord of the word once more in prayer as we lift our time of study up to him. Wes, would you please take us there? Amen. Well, we left off last week considering what it would be for us if we were to insert a blank here in verse 21, in the first part of that verse, if we were to read it as, for me to live is blank. So instead of putting Christ here, what is it that we live for? What is it that we serve? And being honest about this, as we consider this verse, what have we put or elevated above our relationship with Christ. For every believer, our intent and our purpose should be to live for Christ. But are we seeing that lived out? Are we seeing that meted out in our everyday life? And that was a challenge to me this week. Honestly, as I gave and presented that challenge to you, it was a challenge for me as I went through my work and was challenged by various things. I felt like I was being put to the test to see if I really am putting Christ first and living for Him. But now let's consider with Paul what it is when he says to die is gain. So that's another aspect of this verse. If we are living for Christ, then we should considering, consider that death is gain for us. What is this life? Well, it is as James puts it in his letter. We're going to turn there in chapter 4 of the book of James. One of the things we looked at last week is how Paul viewed every circumstance that he was going through on this earth as something that was temporary. And that is for all of us. Every moment, even the moment we're in now, is something that is temporary. God has sovereignly ordained and planned things that are out ahead of us that we don't necessarily know about, but they are all just temporal things leading to something that is eternal, and that is heaven for us, those who have the hope of heaven, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. James would remind us in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, to consider life this way. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And in light of that, and in light of this passage that we're studying today in verse 21, when we consider what it is to be, to die is gain, how much do we work here to put into what lies ahead in terms of our eternity? Because we are only given so much time here on this earth for the glory of God and for the advancement of His kingdom. What kind of investment are we making now that reap dividends into the future, into eternity? And I'm not talking about monetary dividends. I'm speaking of spiritual, eternal dividends. 
You know, we understand that if we invest so much in a 401k or stock options that there will be a certain amount of return that comes from an investment or when we invest time into our jobs or places of employment that there might be some benefit that we would reap. But when we consider this in the eternal, what kind of investments are we making here in kingdom work that will reap benefits into eternity? And how is this verse, to die is gain, how is that realized in us? Because it can only first be realized if we have a saving relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul seems to ponder this principle more and expands on it in the following verses. So for me to live as Christ but to die as gain is then continued in his discourse in the verse that immediately follows in verse 22. So come there with me once again. We'll read that and then we'll unpack it together. He says in verse 22, again, this is in light of for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain if I am to live in the flesh. That means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul has given up all of his rights to himself. You you ask a prisoner who is about to be released what their main goal is what the thing is that they want the most when they are released from prison and you'll probably hear something like I want to I want a cheeseburger or I want to be with with this family member or I want to go fishing or you might hear things like that for someone who is about to be released Paul though is not looking forward to these physical things that he might get if he were to be released from prison he is looking again to the things that are eternal Because while Paul remains alive in the body, he is going to give it up in a sacrificial way. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, this is Paul writing again, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Paul was giving a living example of this. Paul knows that his work as a minister of the gospel, though, has not come back empty. He's seeing the dividends that have been returned from his investing of his life in a sacrificial way. In looking ahead, he knows that God will always prove to be faithful so long as he is submitted entirely to him. Paul is being purposeful, he's being intentional with what he does with the time he has remaining on this earth in his physical body. The temporary thing that he has been given here, how can he use that to glorify God? Because the life we have here for the believer is to be lived for God, it's to be lived for his glory, it's to be lived for sharing the gospel, advancing his kingdom. And we shouldn't read this and think that this is well and good for Paul, now, this is just Paul speaking of this, these things for himself, but this is not for me. This is not just for the pastor. This is not just for the elders or those who are serving in the church. No, it is for every one of us who claim to be saved by God. Through relationship in Jesus Christ, we have that enablement. We have the empowerment by His Holy Spirit indwelling within us to serve Him for the glory of His name. Paul says it means fruitful labor for me. If I am to live in the flesh, to live for Christ, he says that means fruitful labor for me. And there are temporary fruits that we reap from physical labor, the return or the dividends that we receive from that that I discussed earlier. 
But here, it is a spirit-empowered kingdom work that generates this fruit. Paul has put in the sacrificial work of serving God by advancing the gospel through his teaching, by showing as an example how to live a life that is fully committed to Christ and the gospel. And the fruit is likely just him hearing about those who have been saved, those who are walking faithfully and serving God by also advancing his kingdom through the teaching uh, that he has passed on to them through the scriptures and through his writings. The fruit is, is seeing those who have come to faith in Christ that the product of his fruitful labor, the works done for God, is the fellow Christians that now he is serving alongside of. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we love to quote these verses, especially 8 through 9, but we don't always include verse 10 when we read these verses, and that is, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast, For we are his workmanship. This is verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just quote verses 8 and 9. We're saved by grace through faith. We didn't have to work for that. That's unmerited favor of God to save us, to make us his child, to then give us the hope of his kingdom. But to leave out verse 10 and not consider the context of it is that we have been saved for good work, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, fruitful labor for God can only be realized in a personal relationship with Jesus and in the supernatural work of God by His Spirit within each and every believer. And as we live in that intimate, obedient relationship with Jesus, God's Spirit is what enables us, it energizes us, it empowers us to produce fruit that can only come from Him. We can think about Galatians chapter 5 and all the fruit of the Spirit that is seen there, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all those things should be issuing forth out of the believer's life because the Holy Spirit resides and enables and empowers those fruits to be realized in their life. One of the things we find in the Gospel of John there at the beginning is John the Baptist was baptizing those who came to him to take part in this baptism of repentance is uh, what he says when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This was, this was an admonishment. It was something to uh, be instruction to those who were new believers who were coming to faith, wanting to be baptized in that uh, baptism of, of repentance, to be an example for that. But it was also rebuke to the religious leaders of that day. That would be the Pharisees. Those are the ones that were teaching that adherence to the law, all things of the law, including circumcision, was necessary in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, in order to please God. But what John is saying is that there should be fruit produced in a true righteousness. And it's not a righteousness of our own that would come from following the letter of the law, but it's the righteousness, as Ray was saying earlier to the children, that is given, that is imputed to us. Because by faith, 
we realize our sins were imputed to Christ. They were placed upon Him. He died for those sins so that we could have forgiveness from the Father and inherit a peace relationship with Him. But then He would then impute Christ's righteousness upon us so that we not stand in our own righteousness before God, but in Christ's righteousness. Because our own righteousness is filthy rags, right? That's what Scripture tells us. But only Christ's righteousness is perfect. And we need His righteousness to stand before God, to enter into His kingdom, to be declared a good and faithful servant when we arrive before Him in eternity. So let me come back to my notes here. I got a little, little sidetracked there. But here, you know, John was saying this is as a rebuke to the Pharisees. Um, but John's point when he says that we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance is that spiritual fruit is not the change of heart itself. That we are saved, we are regenerated by God. The fruit is the acts which result from a new spiritually regenerated heart. The, the new birth. We are now a child of God. And fruit is such a good analogy. We see it used often, you know, just like in Paul's example in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. But just like natural fruit, spiritual fruit needs to be cultivated. It needs to be watered. It needs nourishment. And it is fed by the Word of God, His truth to us, and in the transforming work of His Holy Spirit in our lives. In Galatians 5.25, Paul writes there that we are to live by the Spirit. If we are to live by the Spirit, that we are also to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit. And this lines up perfectly with what John the Baptist would say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is a life of continual repentance, a life of continual sanctifi- sanctification by God's Holy Spirit. Coming back to verse 22 in Philippians 1, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. Young's literal translation reads this way, that same verse, and if to live in the flesh is to me a fruit of work, then what shall I choose? I know not. So Paul doesn't have clairvoyance. He isn't given this crystal ball that he can look to the future and see what God has for him. God has not shown him how much longer he is to remain alive. He doesn't show us that either. We don't know how long we have to live here. Our life is but a mist or a vapor, as we read in the book of James. But when we are called to be home, when death comes to our physical body, we consider, you know, what that would mean for us, what that would look like. And what is Paul saying when he speaks of this choice that he has between the two? He says, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. And it's not that God has laid out the options for him um, of one or the other. Like, here you go, Paul, now pick one. You get to choose what's behind door number one or what's behind door number two. Paul is not telling us that he can accelerate or decelerate his impending death. Paul's point seems to be that he had not decided which to choose because the Lord had not yet made it known to him which he would choose. Because he was not sure of the Lord's will in the matter. He was not even sure of his own, which he would choose, because it would obviously be whatever the Lord willed for him. And the Greek word for choose here, or as some translations translate this Greek word, hiereo, it could be to prefer, means to make a choice of one or more possible alternatives, and so to choose, select, or prefer. To pick one or to pick the other. 
James 4.14, I'll read it again. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So I think that's what Paul is saying here. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. If the Lord wills, I will do this or I will do that. Paul knew that the only reason to remain in this world was to bring souls to Christ and build up believers to do the same. Paul couldn't say what he would choose between those two, either to die and to gain Christ or to live here for Christ. He knew it was an issue that was in the Lord's hand. And given the choice, he couldn't choose either heaven or earth for himself. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And he he speaks of this dilemma in verse 23 as he continues, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He was hard-pressed in this decision, this dilemma. And the Greek word there for hard-pressed is sunecho. And that is a combined word, sun meaning with, and echo meaning to hold. But it means to be hemmed in on both sides. And it was used of a traveler that was walking down a narrow passage. I don't know if any of you have been hiking or you've been hiking in the Guadalupe Mountains. There's this place called Devil's Hallway. It's a, a bad name for it, but it's a narrow slot canyon, and you were walking down it. You know, you are hemmed in on both sides of each wall, and so it's giving you that path ahead, and if you go to the right, you're going to hit this wall. You go to the left, you're going to hit this wall. Those are just the two options that you have, but this is what this this hard press, this sunecho describes. You have a wall or rock on either side. You're hemmed in, unable to turn aside, and only able to go straight on. And we all have been faced with difficult decisions or dilemmas. Some choices are obviously simpler than others, or obviously either, because normally it involves a positive and a negative choice. Wes knows this about me. If I were to go to a buffet line and there was the choice between peas or asparagus, which one would I choose? Asparagus, right? Because <laughs> I just don't like peas. So that's, that's a simple choice. That's a positive, certainly a positive and a negative for me, what to choose. But let's say we are faced with life and death, because that's what is being brought into the picture for us to consider here. I can't answer for you, but if I were asked, if I were ready to die today, I think I would pick to live. You know, we think a lot about our physical bodies. We think a lot about family members, those that we're close to. As we get more towards the end of our lives and as the aches and pains increase and as the sorrows that we have experienced weigh heavy upon our heart, those things begin to change. Our perspective begins to change. We used to uh, go often into the nursing homes and lead them in, in worship, and then we'd have some time of discussion with them afterwards. And I remember this lady that used to come to our church, and she was 96 years old, and she was wondering to herself, why does the Lord still have me here? I know he's left me here for a reason, for a purpose. And we would talk about that, you know, her ministering to those within the, the four walls that she was in. But why doesn't he just take me? I want to go, I want to be with the Lord. And you could see she was uh, encountered with this dilemma. And Paul has had some time to think about this. Paul has endured so much in his body that I would never want to endure. And I think the suffering that he had endured and the hardships and the persecutions that he, everything that he had underwent to this point 
changed his perspective, caused him to yearn and to long for his eternal home, but yet he was still hard-pressed what to choose. If anyone had realized what Psalm 23, 4 meant, it was Paul, where it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here Paul is looking at what are not a negative and a positive, but he's got really two positives before him. If you can imagine that, to die is gain, he sees that as something great for him, but he also, to live for Christ and the advancement of his kingdom and the glory of his name, that these are two positive things that I have before me to choose between whatever the Lord wills, of course. He understands what is waiting for him when he departs. He will be with Christ. To die is gain. But let me just take a moment, just an aside with you for a short while. And that is what Paul uses when he expresses his desire to be with Christ. It's an interesting Greek word that he uses. Let me go back and read it to you, what we've looked at here so far. I'm hard-pressed between the two. When he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Think about taking that Greek, the English word desire and putting the English word lust in there. My lust is to depart and be with Christ. Now, that doesn't sound right, but yet that is the same word for desire, the same Greek word, that is also used for lust. And it doesn't sound right to us because we always associate that word with something that is bad, that our hearts lust after, they desire after. But imagine this and put it in the context of looking ahead towards heaven and of being with Christ, to be finally face-to-face with your Savior. And that is why Paul is looking at this word. If I desire anything in a biblical way, than it is to be with my Lord and Savior. And I thought it was just interesting that this would be used here. The only other time it's used in a positive sense is when Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored to more eagerly, eagerly and with great desire, with great lust, to see you face to face. So there it is used not in that negative connotation, but something that is, is uh, expressing a, a great desire to be with someone. And with all the trash that we're exposed to that could be lusted after in a sinful way, when our desire is a biblical desire that yearns to be in union with Christ, then it is the right word to use here. It is a need to say a desire, a lust, and that is to be with Christ, that there will be no satisfaction with Paul for us until we are finally in union with our Lord. So what is the desire of our heart? You know, I believe it, it certainly should be Christ. But again, it kind of comes back to the fill in the blank for me to live is. As we grow more in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we should be growing in that desire to be with Christ. To, and that, in a sense, should effectively neutralize the other lusts that we might have after the sinful ways of this world. I want to share with you what a great British evangelist, George Whitfield, said here in his attempt to paraphrase this verse, being hard-pressed. He kind of puts words in Paul's mouth here, so understand this is just a commentator. 
But he says it this way, I go to my everlasting rest. My sun has risen, shone, and is setting. Nay, it is about to rise and shine forever. I have not lived in vain, and though I could live to preach Christ 1,000 years, I die to be with him, which is far better. Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. We've had some good discussion in our Children of the Word group about heaven and, and what awaits us there. And it's very interesting, and sometimes it's comical to see the things that we imagine what might be waiting for us in heaven, but we can only rely on what Scripture tells us of what heaven will be like. And the main thing is that when we see Jesus, He will be the only thing that we want. And even right now, as we live today, Jesus should be the only thing that we want. And I know that's hard when we're faced with so many things that our hearts could lust and desire, but Christ should be foremost in what we, attain, what we desire, what we yearn for, and what we will attain. Notice Paul doesn't have any list for us here of what he wants to see first. He doesn't want to see, you know, Enoch here is like, why? <laughs> why you and, and not these others? No, he wants to first see Christ. It is Christ living a life with a passion for Christ, desiring a face-to-face with his Savior and Lord. For that is far better, is what he considers. Let's look at verse 24 now, and I'll read uh, through verse 26 again. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul seems to be charting out for himself. If I choose this way, if I choose this one, it will lead to this. And if I choose this one, it will lead to this. As we walk through decisions ourselves between one option or the other, we tend to do this. And it's almost like Paul is internally um, going through this, but then it's being shared with us by the Holy Spirit in his writing this down. Both the outcomes seem great to Paul. I think that's one of the things we're supposed to see here. But the better benefit to others is what Paul is considering here. To be with Christ, that's really what he wants, but Paul thinks of others. See, the being with Christ to him would seem self-serving. I want to leave these sufferings behind. I don't have to worry about my body failing. I don't have to worry about my whatever type of execution is facing him, I just want to be with Christ, but I know kingdom advancement is my aim. That is my marching orders here, and that means he should remain on earth for a while longer. And Paul seems to resolve that this is God's will for him as he speaks with conviction of his remaining with him. When he says in verse 25, convinced of this, it's almost like he's landed, he's arrived at what God, God has shared with him according to his will. That he is to remain here. Paul seems that he is resolved that and that is God's will for him. And he speaks with conviction. He's convinced himself of the choice he would make and that he believes that is going to be in God's will, that he will remain alive. But not just for anything. Not just remain alive to maybe go and find a retirement home somewhere where he can live peacefully and not have to deal with all the, the hecticness and things that come with, with leading others. But no, it is for progress in the faith. 
and it is for joy in the faith. That is his purpose. That is why he will remain alive and continue with them, he says, for your progress and your joy in the faith. And I wonder if we consider this as well. Are we serving for the progress and the joy of others in the faith? And the words are linked together here by the same preposition. Both reside in the faith. Both the joy and the progress are through faith in Christ. Progress in the faith and joy in the faith. In Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And Paul is stating the reason why he feels compelled to remain rather than to depart. One of the interesting things there when he considers that departing from them, the word that is used there for depart is actually to take down one's tent and to leave. And Paul, his profession was a tent maker, right? And here he's using a word that describes, I'm going to take up my tent (laughs) and I'm ready to go home. I could depart from you, but yet, no, I'm going to remain here a while longer. And that is so people can grow in their faith and grow in their joy, that they can progress along with Paul in the same things that he is progressing in. If you want to disciple someone, make this your goal. Paul would say something similar to the Christians in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1.24. If you want to go ahead and find that verse, you can. I'll give you some time to go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Just a few pages back, probably, in your Bible. Paul writes there, not that we would lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Here again, the two linked together, the joy, the progress being in the faith. And what a wonderful way to think about ministry, striving so that others may rejoice in all that is theirs in Christ. Can you identify with this mission? And maybe there's someone in your life that you're ministering to. Maybe you have been called to disciple for someone and you've been hesitant about doing so. We have all the guidance and instruction through God's Word. Help them in their progressing in the faith and they're finding that joy in the faith. Do you think about living daily for the benefit of another's progress and for their increase of their joy in the faith? Do you want to help others progress in their Christian growth and joy in the service of the kingdom? I think these are all things that we need to be asking ourselves as we evaluate our lives against God's truth. Again, this is not just for Paul. This is not just for a leader in the church. This is for all of his saints. In verse 26, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There are some translation comparisons to make with this verse because of the difficulty that it is getting it from the Greek and into the English. We like to go with word-for-word translations in our church uh, as we believe that is what God intends for us to understand the Greek as as best we can word-for-word, but we understand that some translations will differ on how they resolve this. So if you're reading from an NASB translation, the verse might read this way. So I'm going to read it for you. Philippians 1.26 
NASB translation, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let me read that again. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. The way this is read is that they're having some kind of of pride that is welling up from within in Paul. And that's the way that could be seen, but we know what Scripture tells us about pride in anyone. Um, And I think that's why these verses have been rendered a little bit differently in other translations. If you look at New King James Version, it says that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So they have taken out everything about pride and confidence in self, but rather making it about all in Christ Jesus. It's that pointing that view that's pointing to it all being found in Christ. So when viewing it this way, it looks like the pronoun your points to their glorying in Paul, and coming back to that NASB translation. Um, just another translation, NIV, if you read from that one, says, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And then finally, the Young's literal translation is that your boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my presence again to you. So we shouldn't think of this um, as them having proud confidence in Paul himself, but rather the confidence and the boldness and the, the boasting being in Christ Jesus, what he has done through Paul, using Paul as an agent or an instrument for God and his kingdom advancement. Barnes notes that through the mercy and grace of Christ, If he, Paul, was spared, his deliverance would be traced to Christ, and they, the saints in Philippi, would rejoice together in one, who is Christ Jesus, who had so mercifully delivered them. Their joy would not only be that he was delivered, but that he was permitted to see them again. And Christ, and I know that this is the the intent here, that Paul would say that Christ Jesus is ultimately the only one in whom we boast and we glory in. We present ourselves as human instruments that are used by God through whom God works by the means of His presence within us through the Holy Spirit. And translation difficulty aside, we see in Paul a readiness for self-sacrifice. If his real want is to be with Christ, his staying here would mean that he would give up on being with Christ to be with them and to not just go out and play cards and shoot pool, but it was to advance the kingdom It was to live for the glory of Christ. Paul would uh, say something that seems to be hyperbole when, when you read it, and it comes out of Romans 9, 3, but you see that his desire is so urgent and strong that his fellow brethren become believers in Jesus Christ, that he would even give up his own salvation if it were possible for the sake of the brethren. In Romans 9, 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So great was the sense of urgency in Paul to share the gospel that it would move him to this degree, to this exaggerating, this hyperbole of sharing. If my own salvation could be removed from me and put upon them, I would do so. Such a heart that is moved by love for those who were lost. And Paul would endure much for the cause of the gospel. He would shine out as an example, not for his glory, but so that Christ would be glorified in him. And it would seem that Paul had concluded that he was going to be set free temporarily when he ends this with saying, because of my coming to you again. 
If he is to remain here, he is to be set free. He is, taking, he is rejoicing that because then he can get to come to the, them again. And that is his looking ahead at what would be God's will in the matter being realized and his being able to see them face to face. And that was great cause for rejoicing for Paul. A face-to-face encounter with the saints at Philippi. Those who had given so much to Paul in the way of financial blessing, but also encouraging Paul with seeing their growth in the Christian faith. Is our view of Christ so high that we want to be with him, even if that means now? If you are to walk outside here or if you are to drop dead at this moment, are you really seeing Christ as your gain? And if you cannot look at the prospect of this and say to die as gain, then are you ready to meet Christ face to face? Are you truly a Christian? Have you put your faith and your trust in Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Are you living that life of repentance, bearing fruit and keeping repentance? The other response here could be, have I shared the gospel with those I'm called to share Christ with? We're not given that long. The urgency that we should feel for those who are lost should move us towards a boldness in sharing and declaring the gospel. There's a story that I want to share before we close. One that I came across in my study and reading through commentary. Adoniram Adoniram Judson is this gentleman's name, and he was the first overseas missionary that was sent out from the U.S. in the early 1800s. And he and his wife made their first trip to India, And there they ministered for a time, but they finally landed in Burma, and that was where he labored for almost four decades. So he's there almost 40 years, but about halfway through, or about maybe 15 years into it, um, they didn't see many come to the faith in Christ. He did get a handle on the Burmese grammar, but he was in prison for a year and a half, and he saw his wife and all of his children die to some form of disease that they they encountered when they were there in Burma. And so his life was filled with suffering there, and he longed to be with the Lord. It was just like those two choices that he had. What do I want? I want to be with God. I want to be relieved of this pain. I want to be relieved of this suffering. But he knew that he should remain behind for the further work of the Lord. And that was more important to him. And this is him sharing his prayer. His prayer was to live long enough to translate the Bible into the Burmese language and to establish a church of 100 believers. And he saw that prayer fulfilled in his lifetime. The Lord enabled him to compile a Burmese English, uh, an English Burmese dictionary, which was a tool that was used by the Christian workers that followed him in sharing uh, the gospel in Burmese language. And Judson said, If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. The foundation that Judson laid is still being built upon today with a Christian presence in Burma. His devotion, his dedication is still reaping rewards for Christ today. Is our view of advancing the gospel for his glory held so high in our lives that we are willing to remain here and let it begin now if it hasn't already? Because the living part as a believer is sometimes the most difficult part. We have all experienced some kind of pain and suffering and hardship in our life, probably never to the degree that Paul had, 
but maybe that is coming soon? Is our life being lived out in a sacrificial way, in the way that we see Paul giving up himself? Are we giving God our everything? Or are we waiting for Him to change our situation and circumstance first? I found myself also sometimes in my own musings thinking that I would be better able to share the gospel, advance the kingdom, minister to others, God, if you would just change this in my life. And then when that this is changed for me, then standing in that space and saying, God, if you would just change this, I would be better able to do this. That it's only, those things are only momentary. Wherever he places us, just like Paul, if it's chained to Roman guards and the praetorium guard, then the answer should be the same. I will serve you, God, with all that I am. Think back on that verse from Ephesians chapter 10 I shared just a while back, that we are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When we have walked in the good works He prepared for us from the foundation of the world, then He will say, it is time to come home. For that is for Him to decide. So march on in kingdom work until then. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. Again, I just pray that you are glorified in the teaching of it, in the study of it. And as we begin to maybe turn these truths around in our minds after we leave here today, God, and we ponder them and we consider and evaluate our, live, our lives against these truths, that you would just cause within us your Holy Spirit to uh, check us in things that we need to be corrected on, God, that you would just encourage and embolden us with the sharing of our faith to those around us as we thought about you know, us leaving here. Are there those that we still need to minister to and share the gospel with? I pray that we are faithful and bold in our service to you and our advancing of the kingdom to your glory, God, and not to our own. Father, thank you again for being so good and expressing so much mercy to us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.